Yet you thought my soul was worth it. So you gave your only son. So marvelous, so marvelous. 
and then you change me, Lord. You rearrange me. You set me free, set me free, free from sin, Lord. I want to thank you for what you've done for me. I want to thank you, Lord, for setting me free. You even broke the chain that had me bound. And then you placed my feet, yes, you did, on solid ground. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing. Oh, such a glorious thing. What a glorious thing. So, so marvelous. What a marvelous thing. Oh, you yeah. time is yours. And we pray now that our hearts are yours. Speak now. This is our prayer for Christ's sake and for your name's sake. Amen. Desperate. Desperate. There's something about the term that perhaps we as mankind don't like. You see, the connotation is negative. The implication is simply that we are not in control. That we don't have the resources. That it is beyond our grasp. If we're desperate, it means we aren't able to do what should be done. But each one of us this morning is desperate. Turn with me to Matthew, the fifth chapter. And just look at verse 1. And it's talking about Jesus here. And verse 1 says this. And seeing 
the multitudes, he went up unto a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Let's read verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Why would Jesus, why would Jesus go to a top of a mountain, see his disciples, see the multitude, and teach? Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that he had compassion on him. That's what the commentary says. Perhaps it had something to do with the fact that they didn't realize what their situation was. You see, these were the people of God. The people of God. These were his chosen. These were the ones whom was given the promise of Abraham that in this seed all earth would be blessed. But he had compassion on them because their situation was desperate. You see, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the rulers, they had all perverted the law so they didn't understand what the requirements of the law was. God saw their desperation. Let me tell you a story. His name is Aaron, let's see, Ralston. Maybe you've heard of that name going back to 2002, 2003. He loves outdoors, hiking, trekking in the mountains. So he left his job as a mechanical engineer with Intel back in 2002 in order to pursue life as a mountain climber. He had the goal of climbing all 14 of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks. He intended to climb these peaks alone and during winter, a feat which had never been accomplished before. But it's a goal that he somehow managed to achieve. But in April of 2003, when Aaron was hiking in the Blue John Canyon in West County, Utah, he put his hand on a boulder, and somehow he managed to dislodge it, and it fell from its perching place and crashed down, trapping his right hand and forearm, pinning them to the canyon wall. You see, Aaron hadn't told anybody where he was going. He didn't tell anyone about his hiking plans. And he knew that no one would be looking for him. Aaron, after a short period of time, assumed that he was going to die. And he spent five days slowly sipping a 12-ounce bottle of water while trying to extricate his arm. His Attempts were futile as he was trying to move an arm that was pinned by an 800 to 1,000 pound boulder. And after three days, he was both delirious and dehydrated. And a thought began to play in the back of his mind. Perhaps he could free himself by cutting off his arm.
He, you know, he experimented with tourniquets, you know, trying to see where he could wrap his arm and where he could cut that would do the least amount of damage to the arm. But he didn't go through with it. On the fourth day, he realized that his plan had a flaw, that in order for him to cut off his arm, he'd have to break the bones of his arm. When he ran out of water on the fifth day, he carved his name, his date of birth, into the rock beside him and left the message as best he could, letting his family members know that he loved them and that he missed them. Around this time, Aaron's forearm died because of lack of circulation. Now dehydrated and facing certain death, Aaron finally chose to go through with the unthinkable. To free himself, he would amputate his arm. Hear me now. What does it take to come to a decision like this? How desperate must you be before you'll cut off a piece of your own body? Would you turn to this solution quickly? Or would it take you some time? Would you turn over in your mind every other possibility? It seems like when we're only faced with certain death that anyone would do something like this. It is a desperate act to amputate a part of ourselves. What I tell you this morning, we all face a similar situation like Aaron. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how desperate are we? Do we realize how bad our circumstances are? Are we prepared to do what must be done in order to resolve our problems? You see, it's only when we realize how desperate our situation is what will be as desperate for a solution. Turn back to Matthew, the, the fifth chapter. And look at verses 27 through 30. And let's read them together. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Whosoever looketh at a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Those are hard words. This is Jesus speaking to those who thought they knew the law. And you notice in these, let's see, few verses, Jesus is not simply condemning the act of adultery, but the very thought of evil itself. You know, 
it first starts on the inside. We got to make sure that the internal is cleaned up before we can deal with the external. And what Jesus is doing in this Sermon on the Mount is giving us an insight into what we're really like. You see, the Bible puts it this way, that we were born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Sin is a matter of not what we do, but what we think as well. It's not just action, but it's attitude. Now, Jesus, in these few verses, is speaking to the Jews of his day who felt that they themselves were righteous. They felt good enough to be in the kingdom without God's help. They felt that they didn't need that Messiah. They didn't need that Savior. They didn't need someone to come and die for their sins because they were able to handle it on their own. But the reason they felt that they were doing so well is because they didn't really understand the nature and the problem of sin. They thought they were righteous because they were keeping the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And the reason for that is because they had an inadequate view of sin. See, if they really understood how deep sin is, if they really understood how pervasive sin is, then they would have known that there was no possible way that they could be made righteous on their own. You see, it grew out of the fact that they had a flawed concept of sin. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks not just to them, but also to us. Because you see, it's only in desperation. It's only when we realize who and what we are will we truly turn to Jesus. Now, in verses 21 to 48, Jesus destroys their self-righteousness. He lets them see that the truth about sin is that there's no way for them to believe that they are righteous. You see, they thought it was just externals, but it goes deeper than that. In fact, this week, the concept so overwhelmed me that it took me back to February 1986. In that year, on the 26th of February, I got baptized. And the reason why I did is because I realized that there was something lacking in my life. I realized that because of sin that I was unclean. I realized that without Jesus, I couldn't make it. And the problem is I lost track. Sometimes we all lose track about how sinful we could be. And we begin to make excuses. You know, that's it's just the way I am. You know, I lose my temper every now and then, but God understands. You know, if they didn't want me to tell the truth about them, they should have stayed home. God said, tell the truth and shame the devil. No, I'm not envious. Uh-uh, I'm not envious. I'm not jealous at all. 
but they got no business doing what they're doing with that money. If God was to bless me like that, I'd tell you what I'd do. You know, it was her children. You know, those no good babies kids that she got. They killed her with worrying over them. God knows I treat my relatives right all the time as long as they act right. We become like modern day Pharisees, comparing ourselves among ourselves when we ought to be like the publican in Luke 8 verses 9 through 14, who was aware that he was a sinner and aware of the sinfulness of sin. In fact, Luke says this, and he spake a parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, who trusted in themselves. The first step towards sin is trusting in yourself. That they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood up and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men are, extorters, unjust, adulterers, or even like this publican. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican standing afar off, afar off, he realized the relationship. He realized that God is up there and we are down here. He realized that he had no call to ask God for everything, but he realized that God was merciful. He beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the text says that, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the altar. For everyone who exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. We've got to be desperate. Recently, a number of polls were commissioned to survey public opinion on what is the greatest problem facing mankind today. And as you can imagine, the answers went all over the board. Some said terrorism. Others said starvation. Some said war in Afghanistan. Others said health care reform. Others said jobs, the economy, Iran, human rights, food, population growth in third world countries, diminishing natural resources, political instability in the Middle East, pollution, global warming, nuclear weapons, biotechnology's impact on nature. And all these are good answers. But the greatest problem facing mankind today has nothing to do with weapons. It has nothing to do with war. It has nothing to do with terrorism, jobs, or human rights. The greatest problem facing mankind today and has faced man throughout the history of this world is sin. That is our ultimate problem. The story is told of a pastor who one day preached very strongly on the subject of sin. And after service, one of the church officers came to speak with him. And he said, Pastor, I've spoken with some other officers, and we don't want you to talk so much about sin. We don't want you to talk openly about man's corruption, 
about man's lack of faith. We don't want you to talk about sin. Because if our children hear you discussing the subject, they'll seek to know more about sin and they'll become that much more easily sinners themselves. So don't speak so much about sin. The pastor took the church officer into the church's utility closet where he took a small bottle from the top shelf, from the very back, where very few people could get a hold of it. And when he took the bottle down, he showed it to the church officer, and he asked him, what did the label say? And at the very top, it said strychnine. Underneath it, rat poison. And then he said to the church officer, do you know what you're asking me not to do in speaking on the subject of sin? You're suggesting that I change the label. Suppose I did that with this bottle of strychnine and I changed the label from strychnine rat poison to vanilla extract. And someone not knowing the danger involved in using this bottle took it and used it for a purpose for which it is not intended. They would die. The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. We cannot diminish the danger of sin, so we must speak on the issue. You see, sin disturbs every relationship that exists within the human realm. And by the way, there are three. God's relationship or rather man's relationship with God, man's relationship with nature, and man's relationship with man. And all three of those have been disturbed by sin. You can read in Genesis 3 about the disturbance. First, man was separated from God and he died spiritually. Second, man, shall we say, had to toil the ground by the sweat of his brow. And third, man's relationship with man was disturbed. Murders, death killing came in because of that. Sin attacks everyone at birth. And before it done, it's done, it degrades, it debases, it destroys. Every broken marriage, every disrupted home, every shattered friendship, every argument, every disagreement, every pain, every tear can be traced back to sin. In fact, in Joshua, the seventh chapter and the 13th verse, God calls sin the accursed thing. It has been compared to the venom of snakes. It has been compared to the stench of death. And when it comes to sin, we need to ask ourselves just five questions. Just five. Number one, what is sin? What is it? Anything this severe, anything this dangerous needs a definition. We need to understand what it is in order to avoid it. The definition is a simple one. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin also, let's see, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So there it is. Literally, in Greek, it says that anyone who commits sin is ominous or full of lawlessness. Sin is disobeying and ignoring God's law. We can say that 
living in sin is acting as if there was no God and no law. Question number two. What is sin like? Here we go past definition, and I want you to look for a minute at the very nature of sin. It can be best seen by its characteristics. Sin is defiling. It is to the soul what rust is to iron. It is to the soul what scars are to a lovely face. It is to a soul what a black stain is to a silk cloth. It makes the soul red with guilt and black with sin. In fact, in Zechariah 3.3, we find the prophet Zechariah seeing sin as filthy garments on the prophet Joshua. Over and over again, we find in scripture that sin is seen as something vile, let's see, defying, something wretched, poisonous, which pollutes that which should be pure. Years ago, years ago, a story is told about Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo was painting one of his great masterpieces, the one known as the Last Supper. It hangs in the Sistine Chapel. He had sought long for someone to model the face of Jesus Christ. And at last, he located a chorister in one of the churches of Rome who was very handsome, a young man named Pietro Baladucci. He used him for the portrait of Jesus Christ. And years passed, and the painting itself was still not finished. All the disciples had been portrayed except one, Judas Iscariot. And after all these long years, Leonardo began to search for another face, a different face, one that had been hardened by sin. He wanted a face that was contorted by lust, by evil desire. And at last he found a dissolute beggar on the streets of Rome with a face so villainous that it caused him to shudder when he looked on him. He hired this man to sit for the painting of Judas's face. And just as he had finished the picture and was about to dismiss the man, he asked him, I'm sorry, but I have not found out your name. I would like to know it. And the man said, don't you know me? My name is Pietro Baladucci. I sat originally for the painting of Jesus' face. You see, after so many years, Pietro had somehow fallen away from God. And living in Sid had disfigured not only his face, but his spirit. You see, that's what sin is like. It disfigures and destroys. Question number three, what is the attitude of sin? Sin is ingratitude. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. And as certain as your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. 
You didn't hear me. God made you. Everything about you. The mere fact that you're here today should be in a time, shall we say, of gratitude from you to him. We owe our very existence to God. Every single person living today is a creature made for God's own glory, to shoreport praise and glory to him. God has a purpose for each one of us beyond that which we can imagine. But there are people today living in absolute ingratitude towards God. Question number four, how does God feel about sin? Sin is hated by God. It is the very antithesis of what God is. Now I know this is obvious to you, but let me add one more thought to you for you to consider. Sin is the only thing that God hates. Sin is the only thing that God hates. Proverbs 16, 19. No, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord doth hate. Yea, seven are abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked imaginations, feet that are swift to run to do mischief a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soareth discord among the brethren. God hates sin. Sin is the only thing that God is antagonistic against. He doesn't condemn people because they're poor. He loves the poor. He doesn't condemn people because they're ignorant. He cares for those. He doesn't condemn people because they're crippled. He made the blind, the deaf, and the halt. He doesn't condemn people because they're ill. He doesn't condemn people because they're despised by the world. God is only antagonistic towards sin. Habakkuk had it right where it says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look upon iniquity. That's how God feels about sin. Question number five. What is the solution? What's the cure? Where's the pill that we can take? First off, sin is not humanly curable. Its victims cannot cure themselves. Jeremiah 13.23 says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good who are accustomed to doing evil? No, we can't do it. Sin is an incurable disease, and man does not have the resources to deal with it. Sin is a disease so deeply ingrained in us that it can only be cured by the blood of one, the divine physician. The Bible puts it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's only in Jesus Christ and him crucified and his blood applies to us that a cure can be found. But the problem is we only take the cure when we're desperate, when we have no other place to turn, when everything else has failed us. 
You see, because of our nature of sin, we tend to do this. Be self-reliant. Be self-sufficient. Be self-confident. And then the question comes, what does God have to do to get our attention? To get our allegiance? To let us know that he is the only one who can help. Sometimes God has to take extreme measures to get us to realize what our situation is and how desperate our need is of him. Take your Bibles and go to Mark once more and look at verses 21 to 23. Mark 5, verses 21 through 23. And let's read these three verses together. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, one cometh, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come. Lay thy hands on her, that she might be healed, and she shall live. The backstory is this. Jesus sailed to the north side of the sea to Capernaum. And when he did this, a crowd gathered around him while he was still at the lake. And then a ruler of the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue. And I should explain what I mean by a ruler of the synagogue. You see, the synagogue was controlled by Jewish laymen. And the most important Jewish layman, usually the one with the greatest amount of wealth, he controlled the activities of that synagogue. He was a man of great importance, of great authority in his community. And you know how the Jews felt about Jesus. It would seem that he would put his position in peril in approaching Jesus. But you see, he was desperate. He was desperate. And he came to Jesus and he said, my daughter is ill. What will it take for you and I to approach Jesus. What will he have to do in our lives that we will approach him and lay everything at his feet, confessing every sin, letting him know that he and he alone is in control. The Bible says that Jesus went with him. And as he went, a large crowd pressed round about him. And then the story is interrupted about Jairus. And another story begins, and the Bible begins to talk about a woman who had an issue of blood. And it says that she had suffered many things by physicians, and she was still not healed. And she had spent everything, everything seeking relief. 
from her malady. But she heard that Jesus was there. And she determined in her mind that she would seek him out. You see, she was desperate as well, too. Because she was ceremonially unclean. She shouldn't have been in the crowd. That's the first thing. The second thing, she was a woman, and women were not welcome in common society. The third thing is that she was a poor woman. And what would she have to do with the master? But the Bible says that she made her way through the crowd. And as Jesus was on his way to go and see Jairus' daughter, this woman intercepted him. And in the back of her mind, it says, if I could but touch his garment. You see, when you're desperate, you go for anything. If I can but touch his garment. That's, that's all I need. I don't need anything else. I don't need to talk to him. I don't need to make my plea before him. I don't need to ask him. I just need to touch his garment. And I'll be made whole. And in the midst of that crowd, Jesus perceived the touch. For us this morning, we're in the midst of a crowd. People surround us, and now is the time to ask the Lord, can you touch his garment? Don't wait for others. Don't look at others. Ask him, can you touch his garment? We all have issues. We all have problems. We all are under the weight of sin. And we need to touch his garment and we will be made whole. Jesus stopped the procession. He perceived that virtue had gone out from him. And Jesus does that from time to time. You see, what he wants to do is demonstrate that faith is enough. You may not know anything else except, Lord, you have to do it. Faith is enough. And he said, daughter, your sins are forgiven. You will be made whole. And just about at this time, some messengers came from Jairus' house. And the news that they bore was not good. And they said to Jesus, no, they said to Jairus, excuse me, why troublest the master? Thy daughter is dead. Now imagine what's going through Jairus' mind at this time. The miracle that should have been his. It should have been his. He asked Jesus first. He was first in line. But the miracle that should have been his is now gone. And I love what Jesus said. He said, only believe. Only believe. I don't care what you're going through, only believe. I don't care what you've done, only believe. I don't care what you're facing, only believe. And Jesus and Jairus 
and that crowd proceeded to the daughter. And Jesus touched her. You see, when you're weary enough of sin, when you're sick enough of sin, when you're desperate enough because of sin, you'll be like the woman with the issue of blood. You'll, you'll push through the crowd. You'll make your way to Jesus and you'll touch him. Just like Jairus, you will not be afraid. You'll only believe. It won't matter what anyone else tells you. You'll just believe. Both Jairus and that woman were desperate people. And when you're desperate, you do radical things. I said earlier that God only deals with the desperate. You see, it's not that God won't deal with the non-desperate people. It's just that non-desperate people usually won't deal with God, at least not on God's terms, because God's terms are radical. You may say, what do you mean by that? Think about it for a second. First of all, God's terms are radical when it comes to salvation from sin. In order for God to save us, God demands, number one, that we admit that we're hopeless sinners hopeless. Number two, that we abandon all of our self-help remedies. You can't do it. There's no pill that you can take, no elixir that you can drink, nothing that you can do. You cannot fix sin in you. Number three, that we cast ourselves 100% not 99 and one half, but 100% on the blood of Jesus Christ on the life of Christ itself as our only hope of salvation and for the forgiveness of sin. And all of this at times is an insult to our ego, an insult to our human pride and to our self-sufficiency. The point is God's terms for salvation are radical and only desperate people will meet them. This morning I ask you again, are you desperate? Are you aware of the sinfulness of sin? Do you realize how we stand in relationship to Christ Jesus? Do you realize that the only way we're going to get out of the situation that we are in is if we put everything before him? In closing, I want to tell you what happened to Aaron Ralston. He was still alive on the dawn of the fifth morning. He had his epiphany. He realized that the only way, the only way that he would escape, that he would live, is that he had to cut off his arm. So in order to do that, what he did is he took a tourniquet and he put it around his right forearm and twisted it tight. And somehow he managed to break his radius and his ulna of his right forearm. And then he performed the amputation. He took a two-inch blade and cut through his arm. He said it took him about an hour to do it. 
And after freeing himself, what he had to do was somehow manage to get down a 65-foot sheer cliff with just one arm, his left arm, and hike eight miles back to where his car should be. But God intervened, and while he was hiking down to his car, he encountered a family on vacation who, when they saw his condition, gave him water and called the authorities who came and rescued him and took him to the hospital. He was desperate. This morning, as I close, are you desperate? Do you realize the situation that you are in? You've been hiking. You've been tracking in this world. And all of a sudden, a boulder of sin has come crashing down and caught your right forearm. Are you prepared to do what must be done? Or are you going to simply stay there and die in sin? Desperation causes us to do strange things. Sometimes people flee back into that which they fear the most. Other times what they do is they struggle as much as they can by their own power to free themselves. But the only answer to our situation this morning, to my situation, to your situation, is to realize that we have to call on Jesus. That we have to cut off anything in us which is unlike him. The text says it specifically. If thy eye offend thee, cast it out. If your arm offends you, cut it off. Cut off anything which is unlike Jesus Christ. The appeal today is a simple one. And it's only for those who are desperate. If you want to lay anything and everything aside which is unlike Christ, I invite you to stand this morning. And one more thing. If God is moving on your heart, on your heart, not your neighbor's heart, not your friend's heart, but on your heart, if he's been speaking to you, if he has been speaking to you, if he's letting you know that things aren't the way they should be, you need to come forward at this time and make it right with God. Don't prolong it. Don't fight against it. Don't tell God next week because next week isn't promised to you. We only have right now. Let us pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we're desperate, Lord. We're desperate. We see ourselves as we are. And there is nothing in us, Father, to commend us to you. We are born in sin. And our very souls are shaped in iniquity. So we ask, Lord, that you cut away anything from us which is unlike you. That you cause that spirit, that spirit which is not of you, that you allow it to die. And in turn, Lord, send your spirit, your Holy Spirit, to reconnect us with you and change us from what we are to what you'd have us to be. And we're asking you each day hereafter that you help us to be desperate and realize who you are and who we are not. Lord, now touch every heart and give them now a fresh glimpse of who you are. This is our prayer, Lord, for Christ's sake and for your name's sake. And let your people say, Amen. announcements before we leave. All the Bible workers, I believe are we having children rehearsal in the blue room? Okay, all the Bible workers, please meet in the pastor's study after the service. And also, pick up some of these flyers and take them to your neighborhood and pass them out. Let us look to the Lord for dismissal. Our Father God, we thank you for this sitting with thee. Lord, we thank you for the words. So we ask you, dear Lord, to help us to apply them to our lives. And if there's anything that's not right with us, that we would get it right with thee before it's too late. For we know that tomorrow is not promised. Lord, we know about today. So bless us and keep us as we leave this place. Go with us, put your arms around us and strengthen us. And may the God of peace be with us forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.